Hello and welcome. It's Graham Norton here. Thank you for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. On the way, 2020 Booker Prize winner Douglas Stewart shares stories from his debut novel, Shuggy Bane. Olivier Award winner uh, Denise Goff celebrates her new ITV drama, Too Close. And best-selling author Nick Hornby outlines his brand new, touching, yet comedic novel, Just Like You. But first, here's Maria. Hi, over there. I'm waving at you, Graham, from <laughs> across the room, from two metres away. More than two metres. Yeah, quite a lot actually yeah I could, I could spit and I wouldn't get to you yeah it's all good <laughs> well that's a lovely image great yeah. thank you so um, much so we can't so Virgin listeners are very bored of talking about the view but we have to acknowledge it you're on your first visit it is special up here, isn't it? It's all right. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, I'm just doing that because everybody wangs on about it so much. No, it's very nice. It's very nice because it's very high. So yeah. you can see a lot of things. And I can see your house from here. <laughs> That's the main thing. That is kind of what you wanted me to say. <laughs> but this is also weird for me. I'm in jeans for the first time in a year, which are really tight, can I say? <laughs> <laughs> there will be, as the weeks go on, I'm hoping that I won't have to use a coat hanger to get them on. Yeah, Brooke Shields would be proud of you. <laughs> that, that's a good old reference. Nothing comes between me and my something. I can't remember what was it, it was. Calvin's? Calvin Klein. I think it was. Oh, Douglas Stewart's on later. What do you mean? Douglas Stewart worked for Calvin Klein. Oh, of course, there's the link. Yeah. Very good, very mm-hmm. good. I mean, also, Graham, being back in London, I've been back on trains, I cycled around London last night. You know, the last year I've been a combination of Miss Havisham and Little Edie from Grey Gardens with a bit of Be- Betty Davis from Baby Jane. So I don't know how to behave anymore with people. I kind of, you know, there were two guys in hoodies walking down the road and I said, oh, do you know what that building is? And they just went, yep. I forget how friendly London is But also, clearly they've forgotten how to be with people as well Do you know what that building I is? Did, I... yes. well, mind you, what was that building? Was it, it, was, was, it... was it, you know, Waterloo Station or something? No, no, no. It was a, a, a youth club for children. And I was just asking them what it was. And just, But anyway, I, I remember now that in London you have to really keep your head down. No, I refuse. I'm going to carry on with my bumpkin ways and chat to everybody. <laughs> it must be quite a shock to be kind of back in the big smoke. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But actually, of course, nothing's open at the moment. But next week... <sighs> Monday. Monday, we can go to visit that lady's furniture shop and I can buy shower gel. Which lady's furniture shop? Somebody texted in earlier about her mother-in-law opening a furniture shop in... Oh, good luck to her. Yeah. (laughs) More furniture shops, that's what we need. No, that is going to be exciting. I think, you know, the economy is going to swell in the first week after the shop's open and then probably it'll dip dip back down to nothing. Because we all realise there's actually nothing we really need. Well, that's the trouble. When when you class something as non-essential... You go, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it is, it is getting your mindset around it. But we accept it is, you know, it's nice to go and, and buy. Like, I was doing some filming up Manchester and I had to have clothes. And, of course, you couldn't really get clothes. I had to have clothes. Well, I had to wear Ooh, something. I had how to recherche. Wear, I, had I had to need wear, clothes. I had to wear kind of showbiz things. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, oh, I, did I get to the bottom of the dressing up box at home? I was wearing things. I was like, I don't know why I kept this. I'm very surprised I can still fit in it. <laughs> but you did, in the, the olden days, as I like to call them, you did have a lot of sparkle, Graham. You were sparkle-tastic. You've kind of matured through the 
ages yes. Um, yes. with your outfits, but you still have all that sparkly stuff, don't you? Well, I've, got some, well I've got some of it at home, but the trouble is if you, once you wear it on telly, people kind of will might remember it because they're so over the top. So, you know, some of them you yes. can't wear a lot. I like the fact when I came in this morning, having not seen you since March the 15th last year, we both compared eye bags. <laughs> 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 to see yeah. how they've grown. Yes, I feel more. Mine are now more than a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> mine are like a good two-week vacation. Mine this morning are a bit like, oh, someone's left the heating on in their bedroom for the last two weeks. <laughs> uh, yeah, mine aren't carry on anymore. But <laughs> carry on? No, I'm afraid they're too big. Pop them in the little case. Um, but you, we're still cycling in, both of us, despite yes. our dotty dotage and, you know, age, increasing age. Well, you know, I do have a physio every day before I get on the bike. <laughs> Full physio. And also, don't you have a little person that cycles it for you? Oh, yeah, I don't do... Do you pedal? Oh, oh no, I don't do pedaling. <laughs> no, I, I do light steering. That's what I do. Good. Yeah, light steering. But, uh, yes, no... Yeah. Uh, yeah, somebody else pedals. That's right. Well, I have to say, for the for the listeners, you are looking mighty well, Graham. Well, do you know what? That little bit of sunshine, which we now crave, yeah. that last was yeah, it was last weekend, wasn't it? It seems so long ago, the sun, but last weekend was amazing to sit out, you know, a couple of people in the garden. For your birthday. For my birthday. Don't go on about it. No, no. Uh, <laughs> the, the picture is being delivered later. It was too big to get in the lift. <laughs> so um, some men downstairs said they would deliver it later. It's it's kind of abstract, Graham. OK, great. I mean, you know, I think it's you. <laughs> <laughs> I think the colours would be nice in your room. And what I'll do, because I'm living now in London for the weekend, I might pop over later just to make sure you've got it hanging. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> now, my big question to you is, have you forwarded the mail here to uh, Top of the Tower? What do you mean forwarded the mail? You know the letters you read out, Maria. That, the, your oh, job, I, yeah, your yeah, actual I job. You I, see, I see where you're going with this. No, yeah. <clears throat> I came in this morning with a big sack on my back like Santa. It took me ages to get through security. <laughs> and so I've, It is tight down there, isn't it? I, I've been sifting through them and I've picked out two, especially for my first day back in studio. Virgin Radio. A letter, please. Yes, here we go. Dear Graham and Maria, I was super excited to be able to meet up with some of my gal pals in a few weeks' time, once we were allowed to sit in pub gardens. So I messaged them to say if they wanted to book anything. Nobody replied for a few hours, which I thought was odd, but I decided to ignore it until I got a message from one of the girls saying they'd already made plans which I was welcome to come to. I said I'd love to go because, of course, I want to see them. But now I'm very confused. Why didn't my friend reply in the group? Why did no one else say anything? I've been racking my brain for something. What have I done to any of them? I can't think of anything. Did they plan to organise something without me? Maybe they forgot. But we've been friends for years. And getting together was the reason we organised the group chat! Exclamation mark. We've organised one-on-one meetups in here too, so it's not unusual to tell people about those. I don't want to be seen as a drama queen. What do I do? That's from Hayley in Margate. Oh, Hayley in Margate, I think you're overthinking this. I think you're really overthinking this. I mean, you know, lockdown has made us all a bit billy-bonkers and a bit paranoid. And, you know, you're going to meet them anyway. People were busy. You, you know, really don't sweat the small stuff. You're going to meet your friends. You'll all have a lovely time. You'll all drink many, many bottles of something nice. And um, you'll catch up. I, I, I just think that there's something going wrong here, Haley and Margate, where 
you uh, sort of wanting to take offence or wanting to feel left out. If they hadn't, you know, if you hadn't been told, yes, you're welcome to come too, you know, you've done nothing to anybody. They want you to come. It's going to be lovely. Well, I just think it's that lockdown thing, isn't it, where you've got too much time on your hands. And so she's got time to stew about this. Yes. If, if you were normal and busy and you had to meet, you were meeting other people, you were getting to work, you had to get clothes ready for going to the office, da, 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 you wouldn't have time to mope about this i think hayley will know when she gets there of course she will and they'll be and they'll be fine everybody will be delighted to or see each other not. oh Graham. well you know you don't know but that's when hayley will know oh i wasn't being paranoid i in fact it's because i and there'll be some stupid thing or not i think probably not i mean but I you'll certainly get the vibe you'll get the vibe there and you will be drinking and vino veritas someone yes. will go actually the reason i didn't reply to your message was and uh, suddenly, you know, there'll be a fist fight and, uh, yeah. <laughs> Drinks will be chucked. <laughs> yeah, red wine but, all the time. I mean, top. <laughs> Graham, I know so many people who have fallen out during this lockdown because you're absolutely right. There is too much time. People have not had the normal pressures of life. They haven't had all the rushing here, rushing there, no time to do this. And so what they do is they just sit and fester about tiny, small slights that have happened to them. They didn't that, like my picture. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> you wait. Um, <laughs> that sort of thing. That wouldn't normally even register. I, I promise you, this is a thing. It's kind of lockdown paranoia that has taken place. And you, you just have to think to yourself, wait, this time last year, I wouldn't have thought twice about it. Four hours to reply to a text is like, you know, normally it's two days or it's a day or whatever. And also you wouldn't care because you would be busy too. So Hayley in Margate, just, you know, chill out and don't arrive at the drinks thing with already an attitude of sort of fury and resentment. Just go, smile at everyone, be pleased to see them. I can't think what you could have done. You've all been in lockdown. What is it? The other thing do you, I think people need to be wary of, and I didn't find this last Sunday. Last Sunday was all right um, when I saw some friends, but I think I have heard of people who they've, they've met up with people and it was a bit awkward. Just because a bit like you talking to those guys in the street, <laughs> yeah. I'm being surprised that people are so not used to hanging out with people. They've slightly got out of the way of, you know, just inconsequential small talk. You feel like you've got to talk about something big because it's been so long since you've seen these people. Yeah. It, it, puts, it puts an importance on a silly meetup that it shouldn't have. Because people also aren't doing anything, so there isn't very much to talk about. Goodness knows we know this, having tried to blather a, a, <laughs> for the last however many months together. Um, so there's not much going on. So people talk about the telly or they talk about, you know, what their workout has been. So it's difficult. But I think the minute you get a few drinks flowing, I think everybody is just going to be delighted to, yeah. you know, see each other. And if it's a, a larger group outside, obviously, or socially distanced, then, uh, you know, it's not going to be quite so awkward, Haley and Margate. Really, take a chill pill on this, I think. Yeah. You're well, beating yourself up uh, over yes, nothing. I think certainly there's no point worrying about it till you get there. <laughs> I, love, I love that Graham thinks that there's going to be some big hoo-ha well, on know, arrival. You know I, I'm just, well, all I'm saying to Haley is, you know, she's either being paranoid, which I think she is, yeah. 
or there is something she's she has picked up on something in this kind of group taxi thing and then you'll get the you'll get the message on the day i hope that there's somebody the bouncer is there wherever she goes and goes when she tries to get in are you hayley from margate no i'm sorry <laughs> hayley you're not welcome here yeah, um, we sense I've trouble asked, we sense I've been trouble asked to take you out sorry <laughs> hayley i was listening to the radio i don't want any trouble here <laughs> <laughs> i like our differing bouncers here <laughs> yeah mine's a bit more mellow yours is a bit more fo- fey <laughs> and mine is a bit more, yeah, I work out quite a lot. <laughs> I've got to in this job, you see. I've got to, got to protect myself. I can't get a shirt to fit me. <laughs> Let's see what you thought. Uh, Sammy in Cardiff has uh, been in touch. Your friend reached out, which is good. So maybe ask her if everyone's fine in the group. Make sure you say you're excited to see them all. See, I wouldn't bother saying anything. I would just wait and see how it plays out on the day. You'll, I mean... These don't sound like people who will hide their feelings very well, given they've ignored you on a group message. Uh, Ted says, Maria is right. Turn up like nothing's happened. If someone does have a problem and they're not willing to be upfront, then that's on them. And likelihood is anyway, there's not a problem and you have a lovely time seeing them. Uh, Hannah needs. They'll be awkward anyway because it's the first time you'll all see each other. Go and enjoy the social test run of meeting in a group and organise the next outing yourself. And that is the thing, you know, because I think... These kind of casual meetups, when we're getting back to normal, they're going to have so much weight on them, so much pressure on them. They've, they're going to be, this has to be amazing. And it, it won't, it'll just be nice. It'll just be what it was before. Perfectly nice to see your friends, but it, it won't be life-changing. Well, it will be life-changing, I suppose, but in a kind of low-key way. Um, be natural before you all meet up and after maybe invest some time into the individual friendships it's been tricky for everyone so maybe other people are feeling the same Tilly and Rygate and also we don't know maybe people have reached out to each other individually and so another chat has formed somewhere else that you know that um, who is it Haley? Haley kind of fell through the cracks that she's not in it who knows um It'll be fine. This is James in County Durham. He's so practical, James. Graham and Maria are right. I'm loving this response. Everything's a bit awkward, communication-wise at the moment, and your good times will soon be restored. Well, we can only hope. We can only hope. Graham's Guide. Over to you. Yeah. OK, dear Graham and Maria, me and my girlfriend moved in together last year for lockdown and despite us both having to work from home in a small house and making that risky move, it turned out really well! Exclamation mark. The only issue is she keeps pestering me to get a puppy, which I've said no to, and it's turned from a joke to something that's escalated to... A bit of a row. It's not that I don't like dogs. I'd love to get a dog with her at some point. I'm just conscious that we're not necessarily going to be working from home forever. Both our offices are looking at getting us back in at full time eventually. And I don't want a potential dog to be left at home all day after a commitment to being around for it. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, how do I make her see this? And that is from Leon in East Finchley. Leon in East Finchley, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's such a lovely idea. And, you know, you've moved in together and it's gone really well. So, kind of the next step is maybe get a dog and so on. But you are both going to be going back to work and that poor little creature is going to be left. And you have to point out to her, this is what I would say to you, that doggy daycare and getting dog walkers in to walk the dogs every other day or whatever 
and so that they're not left on their own, because this is what a lot of people do, uh, is incredibly expensive. So not only are you, you know, our dog's expensive, we've got to get their shots, you've got to get insurance, you've got to feed them, et cetera, et cetera. It's if you need to put that on top of it. So I suggest you tell your girlfriend, Leon and East Finchley, that these extras are going to be needed because you are not prepared to leave a dog on its own for long stretches of time, and neither should she. What do you think, Graham? Well, I think, Leon, get her to watch uh, Paula Grady's For the Love of Dogs, or yeah. I think that's what it's called, the Battersea Dogs Home, what yeah. he does. Uh, because for ages, they weren't filming that because Battersea Dogs Home was empty. Uh, you know, all the dogs gone. Bye-bye. Uh, you know, they just hosed it all down, painted it, because there was no one in there. Well, people rescued them all. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, guess what? They're uh, all back now. They're all back. Um, oh. and, but not those dogs. I mean, the ones that are back are... And th- this is the point. They, they're they not, like, mutts that people kind of... They're took pedigrees. Whim. These are expensive dogs. People spent two, three, four thousand pounds on these dogs. And then, as for Leon's girlfriend, you know, figure it out. Oh, hang on. It takes ages. You've got to walk them. I've got to get up in the morning and do that. I've got to do it before I go to bed. I've got, you know, just it complicates your day. Now... I, and, and a puppy also yeah, takes yes. months to sort of get trained. And you and I, and an awful lot of the listeners, because I know there's lots of dog owners listening to this show, um, you know, we think it's worth it. We think, actually, yes, it is complicated by life and it's very time-consuming, but the reward is enormous. And that's lovely. So we've made that deal. But is Leon's girlfriend aware of how much is going to be? And also, I just think, with if you get a dog... And you go to work and there's somebody comes in to walk that dog in the middle of the day or they go to doggy daycare. Da, 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 da. Now, I see what Leon and his girlfriend get out of it. They get a nice puppy when they come home in the evening. Waggy tail, waggy tail. What does the dog get out of it? You know, it, it's not much of a life for a dog. And neither is it much of a life for a dog if you leave it for long stretches exactly. of time. Yeah. When you're you know, leaving at 7.30 in the morning and not getting back till 6.30 at night... That is not fair on a dog. You cannot do that to a small, to a puppy or indeed a, a grown dog. And if you think, oh, they'll be all right, they just like to lie in front of the fire. No, that is not fair. That is not what a dog's life should be. Like an old dog might get there, but, you know... and They don't want an old dog. They want a puppy no, exactly. that's bouncy. Yeah, and the bouncy dog... <laughs> <laughs> is is very, you know, that's a lot. I remember when I got uh, my Labradoodle, I mean, he was just crazy. I mean, I just, remember that too. Yeah, just a huge ball of energy. <laughs> and, and and I used to have to bring him places with me. And Basically, uh, your Labradoodle was a man in a bear suit yeah. who was about the same weight and the same he, size. He drunk a lot of coffee and eaten a lot of chocolate. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he just went loony. And I remember somebody... somebody once while, you know, Bailey was going insane, just going, it is amazing to think that, you know, soon that dog will just want to sleep all day. And that day did come, Aww. but not for a long time. <laughs> I would say to to Leon, what about doing borrow my doggy for a little while, Leon? Just to, you know, to find out what is involved. You borrow a doggy for a day or two, maybe at the weekend, and you see that it's a full-on commitment. I just don't think the time is right. And don't let it turn into a row with your girlfriend because you've been getting on so well. Yeah. And, you know, it is that thing of, um, you know, if you want something, you can make it work. And that is true. You know, so if Leon and his girlfriend really want a dog, you can make it work. But as Maria says, there's huge cost implications in that. And and also, it will turn your life upside down. 
That's all I'm saying. My friend uh, Billy in Cork, she was in touch that they can borrow Peggy, Peggy's their rescue dog, who's just eaten a second sofa. Yeah, not not eaten one sofa, he's eaten two sofas. And that's the thing, Leon's girlfriend must be aware of. If you get a puppy, it may eat your sofa. I mean, I remember when I, I uh, Labradoodle was a puppy, it ate the kitchen wall. Yeah, I live in a very old house and I think it's like old plaster, like horse hair and blood plaster and it just thought that was delicious and uh, yeah came back there was a hole in the wall stick that in your pipe and smoke it Leon's girlfriend anyway Liz and Burnley uh, make sure you express genuinely that you want this i.e. the dog with her but it's about the dog's welfare she might be worried about commitment so reassure her oh Liz you see this is the female perspective that that really this girlfriend is asking for a dog you say you don't want a dog and what she's hearing is you're afraid of commitment and I get that so yes you're right Liz and Burnley make sure uh, that she understands you're not afraid of commitment and Emily and Spud the Springer in Windsor say exactly the same thing Leon it's not a puppy she wants it's a ring or a baby you see who knew this puppy is actually a cipher That's that's what the puppy is. It's not a real thing. It's it's standing in for a ring or a baby. Borrow My Doggy is full of puppies and another option is maybe to volunteer with the Cinnamon Trust or another charity to help the elderly or infirmed with their pet's needs. That's Sarah in Brighton. Now, I did not know about the Cinnamon Trust. I'm going to look into that. That sounds like a great charity. And actually, that is a very good idea because it will be exactly the thing that Leon's girlfriend needs to see is the amount of time it takes. You don't just get to cuddle a puppy on the sofa, uh, you know, when you want to. That dog requires walking, feeding, attention, training, all of that. So good if you're you're borrowing someone else's dog. You will see how long it takes. Uh, An anonymous texter says, maybe foster a dog. There are lots of dogs needing care before they can be rehomed. And this will give you an idea of just how much time and effort you need to invest in a dog before you make a choice. I mean, the other problem, I suppose, is that now isn't real. So actually, you might have the time now to look after the dog but what you can't plan for is what it's going to be like when you go back to work and what your hours are and how long your commute is and who's going all of that uh, Kate says hold her off <laughs> back off lockdown is lifting and soon you'll be able to go out and do things you need to start dating each other again not settling down well Kate young at heart yes uh, it's so true it's so true uh, yeah you head out really and final word to an anomalous I say go for it you'll make it work if you're happy together and love the puppy just make sure you're willing to spend the time money training and dedication to giving it its best life it's 2021 puppies are the new children and plants are the new pets so if you don't want the commitment get a peace lily okay thank you very much for that that's very helpful the Graham Norton radio show with Waitrose you can taste when it's Waitrose Virgin Radio. Time for my first guest of the day. His name is Douglas Stewart. His book, Shuggy Bane, has just, well, wowed everybody. It's got amazing reviews. It's bestseller. It's Booker Prize winning. And it's now out in paperback. And Douglas is on the line from New York now. Hello. Hey, Graham. How are you? I'm very well. I can't see you, but I feel I can. I've seen you do so many interviews in front of that white bookcase. Is that where you are? (laughs) 
<laughs> I am. I'm still sitting on that grey sofa. <laughs> I mean, you have spent, you must have spent, like, cumulatively about two months sat on that sofa talking into a laptop. Oh, it's absolutely true. It's strange I've been everywhere and yet I've been nowhere this year. It's been the strangest feeling. Because I think, did you manage to squeeze in one real book event at the very, very beginning? That's right. And that's really unusual for an author, you know, because most of our, our life and our promotion is about meeting readers and talking to people. And I've actually only ever done that once. I mean, I, well, but yeah, the, but what's great is it hasn't hampered the book in any way. You know, it's had this extraordinary journey. Um, so if people haven't heard about the book, tell us who Shuggy Bain is and, and tell us some of his, his story and what the book's about. Yeah. Well, Shuggy Bain is the youngest son of the Bain family. And the book is about the Bain family who are uh, living and loving in 1980s Glasgow as the city is going through a really tough time underneath the Thatcher government. But at the heart of the book is Agnes Bain, who is a very proud, defiant, glamorous mother. Uh, but Agnes wants very humble dreams. She wants to be adored. She wants to have a little bit of glitz and glamour. But when her husband takes the opportunity to abandon her and her children in a mining village that is on the outside of Glasgow, just as it's being closed down, uh, Agnes starts to descend into alcoholism. Uh, her children love her very deeply, uh, but it is her youngest son, Shuggy, who stays by his mother's side the longest. And Shuggy has enough to contend with with his mother and trying to make her well and whole, but he's also dealing with his own sort of uh, burgeoning identity and he's othered very quickly within the community because he is seen as being effeminate and precocious and just no right. <laughs> and, I mean, Agnes is such a heartbreaking character because, you know, she's she's almost a functioning alcoholic. She's nearly mm. functioning, but not quite. Mm. Mm. Yeah, she has tons of strength, I think, because she um, actually has this really powerful superpower where she uh, portrays to the world this very powerful, glamorous uh, face. And every single day she gets up and she shows the world her best foot forward. But on the inside, she's crumbling and she's very deeply hurt. And so Shuggy can see both sides of his mother and it tries to sort of manage them for her. But they're both sort of clinging to each other as the world spins around them. And it's, it's about that very remarkable love that children have for flawed parents. You know, I think children are fantastic and um, their love is always unconditional and they just want the best for their parents. And so I wanted to write about that. And it's not it, it's not a me I mean it's not autobiographical it is a fiction mm. and but yet it is borrowed from some of your story um your brother you have a brother and a sister is that right that's right yes so how what's mm. their response to the book been and I mean were they nervous of you kind of publishing this story and exposing it to the world uh, no, they were in full support, I think. Um, and actually, I let them read it before I let anyone else read it, uh, because I felt it was important. But it is a work of fiction, Graham, as you said. But I do draw a lot from uh, my own upbringing and my own childhood. You know, I grew up in the same sort of poverty that Shuggy grew up in. And, and certainly the love of my life, my own mother, um, suffered with addiction from my first memory until I lost her when she, I was 16. And so although Agnes in the book is not my mother, I do... Uh, draw on all those feelings of love and loss and hope uh, to create the story. 
And did you ever think of just writing a memoir or was it always going to be uh, fictionalised? It was always going to be fictionalised. I didn't feel important enough to write a memoir, to be totally honest, at the beginning. And and as soon as I sat down to listen to the characters of Agnes and Shuggy, then loads of other characters rushed in. You know, one of the joys of writing a working class narrative is that there's a real chorus of people going through a lot of the similar things. And I wanted to allow them to tell their story, uh, uh, to make it as rich a story as possible. So it never could have been a memoir. And I think what's great is because you can sort of tell that you you lived it because you never sentimentalise it. It's never sort of poverty porn. There's, you never kind of soften it. It is as grim as it must have been. Yeah, it was, it was incredibly hard. And it was also incredibly funny at times. And it was really tender. Um, you know, I wouldn't have changed my upbringing for the world. But when I was writing the book, it was really a personal project. I didn't know if it would ever be published. And so for the 10 years I wrote it, it was... The only person who was reading it was me, and at times my husband. But that allowed me to be in service to the characters and to tell their story uh, as clearly as I as I possibly could. You know, I didn't have any reader in mind at the end of it. And actually, what I meant to say earlier was, because winning the Booker Prize is one of those things, it's such an honour, but equally, mm. I think there'll be people listening to this thinking, oh, I've won the Booker Prize, it must be impenetrable <laughs> and dry. <laughs> and it's really, we should say it's not. It's a really accessible book, and it is heartbreaking, but also sort of, it has that, that raucous kind of energy of, of a a city and yeah all of that it's it's great i'm just gushing is there going to be a sequel to shuggy after the pain of glasgow maybe the bright lights of nyc um i don't know if there'll be a sequel for shuggy right now i'm actually trying to work on the the uh, the screenwriting for it uh, in the hopes that we can bring it to the big screen. But I wanted to leave Shuggy where we left him and as a way to sort of give him to readers and to pass him along. Uh, but I will be revisiting uh, a young man, a story of a young man who's in similar circumstances to Shuggy, but it will be a totally different story. And is that book, is that second book done and dusted now? I'm putting the finishing touches to it and hopefully it will be published in the middle of next year. Wow, okay, great. And th- your own story, so... You were very successful in the, in the fashion world, is this right? You you trained as a design, as a designer. That's right. Yeah, I actually have a training as a as a knitwear designer uh, in textiles, and that took me to London first of all, and then brought me to New York. and And for the past twenty years, I've worked in big fashion houses here. And you know, lovely. You're very successful in your big fashion houses, and then you're at home at night tip tapping away for ten years on Shuggy Bain. How did it become a book? How did you? What was your kind of entree into the world of of publishing? Did you actively seek out an agent? Who did you show the work to? Yeah, it was very non-linear and it took a long time because I obviously was working around my primary career, but also because I couldn't say goodbye to the characters. I was just loving spending time writing Shaggy Bane. But when uh, the book, about the 10-year mark, instead of (laughs) being a joy, it actually felt like a creative sort of blockage. I thought, I have to let Shuggy go. I have to let Shuggy and Agnes get on with their lives. And so then I approached an agent and was fortunate enough to get an agent. And then we sent it out uh, for editors. And I had so much hope for the book, and it was very soundly rejected across the board. Well, now, okay. so here's the thing. I read a short story you wrote in The New Yorker, and I loved it. And so Mm. I knew this book was coming. So I actively sought out a proof copy of it and I read it and loved it. But I have to say, I did read it thinking, 
how on earth are Americans going to <laughs> read this book? It'll be impenetrable to Americans. But it has done well there, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And also in Delhi and in Italy. Uh, you know, I think people underestimate the curiosity of readers. Uh, and I think we are always looking for new ways to approach language because some of the book is written with broad Glaswegian uh, as a dialect. But uh, it also talks, I think, to the universality of the themes at the heart of the book. We all understand love and loss and hope and rooting for someone when we want them to be better. And that's uh, and also what Shuggy goes through just as a young man. Um, and that's been the, the thing that's connected people around the world. And, but was it the language that made those people reject it initially or was it the, was it because the dark themes of the book or why do you think people passed? I think it was a little bit of all of it. Everyone had a slightly different reason. Um, I always respected the editors that said, yeah, I don't like it. And that was the entire <laughs> reason. Because you're like, that's fine. I can accept that art is subjective. Um, but many people thought it was the most fantastic book and said things like, this will win the booker, but I do not know how to publish it. And that's a challenge, I think, for editors and for publishers. Sometimes uh, they know they can't do the best job for a book, and so they step to the side. But there was a whole gamut of reasons. There was just people who didn't like the book, found it perhaps a little bit too sad a little bit too Scottish and then there were people who loved it but didn't know what to do with it. And are you still working in fashion or is that all behind you now? That is all behind me. I've actually wanted to be a writer since I was a kid, Graham, and so writing Shuggy was about sort of getting back to my dreams that had been furloughed for most of my adult life. And so when Shuggy was about to be published uh, back in 2020, I stepped away from fashion because I wanted to be fully present. Wow. I mean, that's a ballsy thing to do. You know, if, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure you knew that it had great reviews by then and people were responding to it. But, you know, that's still a, a brave thing to do to go, go, no, that's me. I'm a writer now. Yeah, I think winning the booker has really brought a lot of relief to my husband, first and foremost. Because <laughs> he was kind of looking at me and he's like, are you sure you want to do this? But I felt uh, if you don't take a risk on your own work, then how can you ask other people to? And and I've been waiting so long to be in this moment to actually have some work in the world, to have a book published. that I thought I didn't want to miss a moment of it. So yeah. it felt right to me. And how amazing that you didn't get lost in the in the whole kind of, pandemic and you know because for a, as you said you know for a debut particularly for a debut writer it's so important to get out and do those book events and meet people and get around the place so I yeah I was so worried for you but it's fantastic that it's found an audience just brilliant well actually I did get lost because um in the book was first published here in America because I live here only because I live here um and I published a week before the pandemic hit and so I came into this moment with all this hope and this 10 years of uh dreams behind me and then everything, of course, as we know, we all went through it, just sort of vanished and evaporated. And as you know, books publish every single week. So I lost my moment to sort of to share uh, my work. And then more books were published the week after and the week after. And, and so it was actually only when Shuggy came home to Glasgow, to the UK, and then made the long list uh, for the booker that he became a little bit of a revenant. But for about six months, I was very worried. Oh, well, I'm so glad it's all... It's all I mean, to say it worked out well is an understatement. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really gone about as well as it could go. So uh, congratulations to Douglas Stewart. Thank, Thank you. you very much for joining us today. Shuggy Bain is the book. It is out in paperback now. We look forward to your next. Thank you very much for joining us. Take care now.
Thank you. Thank you, Graham. Bye. Bye-bye. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Too Close is a new ITV drama, a psychological miniseries uh, focusing on the dangerous relationship between a forensic psychiatrist and uh, Connie. Connie is played by Denise Goff, who joins us now. Hello, Denise Goff. Hi, Graham Norton. How are you doing? I'm very well. Oh, you're one of my favourites. You, you. Oh, and you are one of mine. <laughs> oh, <Graham>. that's all good. <laughs> uh, no, I was thrilled, uh, thrilled that you were going to be on, and thrilled to yeah, see you in this. Uh, what a fantastic gift of a role for an actor. Um, yeah. Brilliant opening. So tell us as much as you can. I mean, you can certainly tell us that opening scene, which is just so gripping, and you're you're immediately invested. Go. You see, yeah. So um, Connie is a woman who has um, driven her ch- child and her child's friend off a bridge and um, and then is claiming to have dissociative amnesia. And so the story follows um, Emily Watson's character as she tries to figure out whether Connie is lying or not about that. And so the three episodes cover um, whether she is or not. And it's, you know, for you, I mean, because we, we see it's, you know... W- it's like you're playing different people in it, you know, because... One the... is very pretty and the other <laughs> one, not so much. The not so much. So uh, uh, who, who knew there was so much bruising over drive, if you drive a car off a bridge? Um, I know. Uh, that your eye, oh my God. So what is that? Is that, an, is that a contact lens or something? It's a contact lens, a coloured contact lens that was really uncomfortable. And initially it was two of them and I knew that there's just no way I could have done all of that crying acting if I had two contact lenses in so we settled on one and so, yeah it was uncomfortable so you it begins with that and we we kind of go back it, there's a lot of flashback to connie when she was beautiful and happy yeah, exactly <laughs> with long hair and gorgeous <laughs> yeah so you go you see um the kind of build up to the moment when it happened and so then the audience gets to see whether they um believe her story or not it's also, I mean, at the heart of the drama is that relationship between you and the psychiatrist played by Emily Watson, where you kind of, it's because you always imagine that if you were in therapy, that you you try and do that. You would try to manipulate the therapist. Yeah, well, I certainly do, Graham, in all my <laughs> therapy sessions. Um, yeah, so um, it's about, she's really defensive. So her way of trying to get out of dealing with what's going on for her is to turn it on to um, Emma, onto Emily's character, which I would imagine um, fear is what makes her do that, you know. And uh, and so then it becomes, you get to see what she uncovers in Emma too. So it's like a psychological um, warfare for some parts of it. Just getting to do that with Emily Watson was like heaven for me, you know. Because I was going to say, those bits, those sessions, uh, did you rehearse them like a play? Because it, they're just two-handers in a room. Yeah, but we didn't do much rehearsal. You read it through a couple of times together, but then, I mean, that's what screen acting is. You just do it with the camera on. And um, But because both Emily and I love that stuff, that's where you really get to... It's just two people talking in a room. It's like that scene in Hunger with Michael Fassbender and Liam Cunningham that goes on for like 20 minutes and it's just fascinating. At least I hope it's fascinating for you guys watching it. No, no, it was it definitely is. for me to yeah. get to do that with someone like her was just such a dream, you know. And full disclosure as well, uh, Clara Salomon, who wrote it, I would, well, I went to drama school with her. 
Did you? Yeah. And Emily and Claire, Clara know each other since they were five. They grew up together. All right, she wins. I don't know her that well. Uh... Yeah, I know, but what a clique. I'd love to have hung out with all of you lot. Yeah, <laughs> um, but now, I guess one of the joys of this was because you didn't expect to be doing that sort of acting, you know, in, in lockdown, but you did. Yeah. Where Where were you when you were told, oh, by the way, acting's non-essential, we don't need you, bye-bye? Oh, God, yeah, well this time last year wasn't it so um all we were meant to do it early last year and it was all just pushed back and pushed back and then it was just about figuring out how we could do it safely but then it turns out now we're essential workers graham tv people making telly is essential and uh, and so they made it so that we could do it we shot it in september october of last year and everyone just had to be really super careful and adhere to all the covid guidelines so just felt really lucky that we got to do it at all because i i didn't think that we would if i'm honest yeah no it it does change your approach to work when you kind of really actually working isn't just something you get to do it is an absolute privilege and <laughs> oh my god so much so and the way that like for me i couldn't wear a mask because of all of the makeup so everyone else had masks and shields and we all had to socially distance so you really had to everyone had to look after each other and we were so lucky that no one got sick you know it was it was pretty amazing and it's quite humbling when you see how the lengths that everybody had to go through to do their job um, yeah just to do their job you know, on, on drag race because of all the makeup on the drag queens <laughs> they have to wear they have these visors these perspex visors they hold yeah. in front of their faces yeah amazing amazing uh, what I meant to ask you Denise, was where have you been have you been in London the whole time for lockdown yeah the whole time yeah because like I've been here for so long this is my home it would have felt strange for me to go anywhere else no but I, I did won't... get to Ireland once um through just before we went into this main this big lockdown i went to ireland and promptly got covid so oh uh, won't be doing that again (laughs) (laughs) very foolish and but so uh, because i'm used to this with dates and times so angels in america on broadway that had finished already yeah god when was i think that was two years ago i have no idea it's all a blur idea all i know is i'm still 40 i'm still 40 (laughs) yeah that that's not going to change for a while for a long time (laughs) long time (laughs) um have you got any plans to go back to the theater have you got things lined up for oh my god as soon as we can but i want to do people places and things which is the play that made everything else in it's the reason i'm here but i would love to do that again possibly on broadway that would be the dream because yeah. um yeah to do that show but you know i don't really want to do that socially distanced with everybody sitting five seats apart you know the whole point is there's a thousand people clapping for me That's yes feeling guilty about <laughs> feeling guilty about getting a drink in the interval yeah exactly <laughs> if people haven't seen people places and things it's when i i think it's, it must be the first time i saw you i think and it's so Good. It's, well, it was it, yeah. the best thing because you said usually I fall asleep and I didn't. <laughs> that was my favorite thing anyone had ever said to me. Was yeah, I mean usually I fall asleep in a play, but I didn't with you. Yeah. Well, no, but also <laughs> it's that thing where I, I think you know, it's like when you go to see a good play like that, people, places, and things. Yeah. It makes all the terrible nights of the theatre worth it. I know, because there are so many terrible nights of yeah. the theatre. And can you imagine what it's going to be like for the first play <laughs> that goes back on after <laughs> lockdown? Like, Mark Rylance uh, is coming back to do Jerusalem, and it's like, oh, that's a safe bet. We know that'll be good, right? We'll all be in. But imagine being backstage waiting to go on going, God, the pressure. <laughs> yeah, we left the house for this. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
Absolutely. Is he asleep? I'm sure I see Graham Norton asleep in the second row. <laughs> oh, but that's exciting that you're going to, because I, I, yeah. That, you, oh, I would love to, but who knows? Like, I don't know whether it would happen or not, but I, I would hope. We were sort of talking about it before everything happened and then, but who knows what the poor theatre's state is going to be like when we come back. I don't know if a, a play about addiction on Broadway is going to be the thing yeah. they want to invest their money in, but we'll uh, see. Yeah, and also it's got a cast. I mean, you need, it's not just you. It's, yeah. yeah. And I actually, mean, it oh, and it's got that big set program. as well. It's got that great set. and yeah, it's a huge set and huge amount of actors and everything. So um, we'll see. But by then, maybe I'll be really rich from working with Disney. So <laughs> great. <laughs> I can put it on myself. I like, I like that we're just throwing things out here. Okay, we yeah. need a musical. We need, we need uh, a musical. We need all sorts of... You know, basically, this yeah. is how I do it, Graham. I go on the radio, say what I want, and hopefully get phone calls that afternoon. Yeah, Disney Plus, listen to this. They do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Denise Goff wants to be a princess. Come on. <laughs> She's getting old. She can be a sad, tragic one. <laughs> uh, you can see Denise Goff looking beautiful and then slightly less beautiful <laughs> in, in Too Close. Too Close starts Monday uh, night on ITV. And then what's great is you don't have to wait. It's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And yeah. uh, then we find we we do find out, don't we? We do know at the end. Please yeah, yeah, it. you know everything. At okay, the end. good. I, yeah. I, yes, yeah, it's I don't, not one of those unsatisfying. Yeah, ones I don't want to invest three hours you. and then kind of go really. Exactly, I wouldn't expect you to, Graham. I know. Thank I know you. That you wouldn't My time is that. very valuable, Denise. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Denise, thank you so much for taking time to talk thank to us today. You. So nice. To All talk right, to you. lovely to talk to you. Take See care of you yourself. Soon. All bye. right, bye, 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 bye. And now, the brilliant best-selling author Nick Hornby tells us more about his eighth novel, Just Like You. Hello, Nick. Hello, Graham. How are you? <laughs> uh, so, Just Like You, out in paperback, uh, it's a sort of it tells the story of an unlikely romance played out against Brexit. Uh, what do you want to tell us about uh, the story? Well, uh, it's uh, a love affair, um, a romance between um, uh, a young black man and uh, a white uh, older woman. Um, they are different in most ways, um, but they manage to jump over all the hurdles that are put in front of them. And it's set at a time where it felt like one half of the country would never speak to the other again. So it seemed a good time to write a book about connection. And that idea of, you know, what makes a relationship work is, that you know, that thing, um, marriage is a covered dish. You know, we don't know. In terms of putting two unlikely people together, do you think that's, that is true, the kind of pe that people can find that connection with someone so different from themselves? Well, I put it the other way, that most of the time in our romantic lives, we are, we more or less stick to an arranged marriage format. We tend to marry people who have the same education as us and the same interests as us and come from the same class as us. And yet uh, half, half these marriages end in divorce. So um, clearly there's another way of looking at things. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. If it's not if it's not working, try some try something else. <laughs> and what was the start of this of this book? Was did it come from the backdrop of Brexit, or did it come from the idea of trying to figure out what made people fit together? Yes, it came with the characters. Um, I actually watched uh, a little flirtation in a shop in my book, um, Joseph. Uh, the boy works um, uh, on Saturdays at the butcher's shop 
and Lucy's a customer. I watched a little flirt in a shop and thought, oh, they're, they're such a cute couple. And then I came away thinking, but I know the reasons they'll never get together. And then I started thinking, but what are these reasons? And are, are they really as, uh, uh, as preventative as, as we think? And that was some years ago. And it wasn't until the year after the referendum that I thought, oh, now might be the time to write those people. And in terms of, you know, a, a lot of people talk about the way you observe things. And in this book, there's, you know, brilliant little details like that scene in the shop or there's a wedding or there's going to the theatre. There's, there's lots of... And when you read it, you kind of think, oh, yeah, that is... I, I absolutely recognise that. So I have seen it, but I didn't notice it in the way you did. Are you aware of that as you live your life? Do you kind of mentally take note or do you actually write things down or does it just come to you when you start recreating a scene in the book? Mostly it comes to me. Um, I think writing things down from life isn't that helpful once your characters are being who you want them to be. I mean, they're, they're doing things that I haven't done or they're doing things that no one I know has done. Um, so the, the the observations, as it were, are tailored for the individuals that I've imagined. And, you know, obviously you've been very busy in your life, but it's been six years since there was a novel. How much pressure do you get from Penguin? Or Penguin kind of going, eh, Mr Hornby, uh, any sign of typewriter? Um, they, well, you must they, feel that pressure. They'd like me to write more, I think, more <laughs> books, but... Um, most, what happens is that I do, I do a lot of screen work and the screen work comes from outside. People come and say, do you fancy having a go at this? Do you want to adapt this book? I've got a TV series about this. And, and so books tend to get put to one side because they have to come from inside. No one's going to come to me with an idea for a book. So the time reserved for fiction tends to get encroached upon by, uh, by elsewhere. And do you have to be quite disciplined? Do you have to kind of go, no, I'm actually going to turn everything down now because God love the people in Penguin. They haven't eaten for um, you know two years now. <laughs> yes, I think when, when it's time for a book, then it doesn't matter how exciting the project <laughs> someone's coming to you with. You have to turn it down. Bizarrely, the Rolling Stones of my life at the moment. Um, I'm trying to write an enormous TV drama series talking about interruptions to book life um, uh, about the Rolling Stones so it's in the style of The Crown um, but it's um, about the band from their very beginnings to the mid-70s um, hopefully 16 episodes and, Wow um, it's I'm working with with the band um, it's with their permission um, so I uh, they, they are who I think about every morning and every evening and I still want to listen to the music. <laughs> so Nick, in terms of reliable narrators and unreliable narrators, how reliable are the Rolling Stones memories? I mean, as, as kind of as a research tool. Um, it's really interesting um, because my experience is that everything I find, in a biography or a piece of journalism has some terrible mistake in it that's been there since God knows when, 1973 or something. And um, uh, I'm having quite long conversations with the lead singer of the band at the moment, and his memory seems to be amazing. 
actually. He is. He's much more. Um, I've I met him once. I. I I can't remember why, but I did. <laughs> and uh, he was kind of very kind of vivid and engaged in a way I wasn't expecting. I thought he'd be kind of very jaded rock and roll uh, star. Uh, yeah, he's been um, really interesting, um, quite uh, warmly disposed to the project. And um, so far, uh, we're all getting on great. <laughs> all good. Um, and can you tell us who that's going to be for or is it all is it all shrouded in mystery? Uh, well, I'm writing for um, FX in America. Um, we haven't cast or anything yet. <gasps> oh, God. Be but whether, whether we get there, I, I really don't know because, as you know, Graham, um, lots of these things tend to collapse before we ever arrive at that point. I don't know. If Nick and Mick are, are attached to this project, <laughs> I think we're good. I think it's going to happen. Uh, it's only if you fall out with Mick. If you can't get it's, the music, it's doomed. It's very, very expensive. <gasps> Not the music, but the, the show, you know. Yeah, well, I guess any period thing is going to be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's six, 16 hours of television, so. I do. I really hope that makes it. Uh, that It sounds amazing. When you're writing, I mean, obviously now you're writing the Rolling Stones thing, you're listening to the Rolling Stones, <laughs> but do you listen to music when you write? What was the soundtrack for Just Like You? Uh, I don't listen to music um, when I write, or, or I don't listen to anything with words in anyway. Um, I, I, with Just Like You, I was I was looking back at, what we were listening to in um, 2016 and 17, um, and and that was a bit of a soundtrack. But um, there's certain pieces of music that serve as fuel for me, and so I will listen to them very loudly on the way to work, and uh, uh, and they sort of get me through the day. When you say on your way to work, so do you leave the house in order to do your writing? I do. I ha it's where I am now. I'm in a, I have an office about 10 minutes' walk from home. And what's that, just for your head to kind of make a difference between I'm at home, I'm at work? Yeah, it started because when my children were young, um, their days are incredibly short <laughs> and they don't, they're no respecter of privacy. So, um, and I didn't want, when I do interviews and so on, I didn't want people necessarily to come into my home and inspect the uh, terrible behaviour of said children. Um, so it's much easier to have a neutral space. What's the difference when you're adapting your own book compared to, like, adapting, say, Brooklyn? Well, I don't adapt my own because I'm just sick of them by the time they're published. <laughs> um, and it, the process of books is slow and the process of film is even slower. So if it takes me two years to write a book and then frequently five years to make a movie, it means you're, you're thinking about that material for seven years and I don't want to do that. I'd rather think about the next thing I want to write, or indeed someone else's material. And I suppose, do writers feel safer with knowing that you're doing the adaptation? Because they kind of think, oh, you'll have a writer's sensibility, you'll be kinder to the, to the source. Uh, I don't know if it makes any difference. It's such an ungovernable process. I mean, there are so many things that can make a bad film, and obviously the script is one of them, but you can have a bad editor or a bad soundtrack or obviously bad director or one part miscast. It really is collaborative, and um, you need everyone to be at the top of their game for the film to turn out. But that's kind of fascinates me in that you have the ability to work alone. You know, you can sit down and you can write just like you and you 
own it. It's it's everything about it. All its its success, all its failures, everything is just Nick Hornby's. So why yeah, expose? That's the, that's the problem. <laughs> oh, is that the, is that the problem? <laughs> why expose yourself to that thing where you're relying on some director you didn't want, or you're relying on you know an actor you didn't cast but the studio insisted on? Well, um, because when it goes right, it's um, a really fantastic experience. And in fact, something like Brooklyn, um, I, I can take enormous pride in Saoirse Ronan's performance, but it's not my performance, it's her performance. I'm enormously proud of the film in a way that I'm not about my own books, because when I look at those books, I think, oh God, that could have gone better, or I should have rewritten that bit. But the, the films, it's, it's other people's work as well as my own. And um, I, I like being a team player sometimes. And and when the the team is firing on all cylinders, it's it's a great experience to be involved in. Uh, well, Nick, Nick Hornby, uh, it's time to leave your office and go back and face your children. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, don't, please let me stay. <laughs> you can stay in your office and listen. <laughs> uh, Nick Hornby's latest, just like you, is out in paperback now. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Nick. Thank you very much Thank for joining you, us. Thank you. All right, bye. take care of yourself. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me for the Graham Norton Radio Show podcast. I'm back on Virgin Radio at 9.30 on Saturday morning with Waitrose. Don't forget, the next episode of the podcast will be out first thing the following Monday. Chat to you then. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio.